Last week we began a little three-week series in the New Testament letter uh, that a man called Paul wrote to his friend Titus. So this is a book in the New Testament. You can see it there. It's only on two pages, three chapters. Um, It'd be really helpful if you can keep your finger in the page there because we're going to refer to it as we go through. And um, for those of you who like to make notes, there's a little page in the program there where you can see a little bit of an outline. I've left a big gap in the middle because that'll be the main part of what we're talking about. Uh, Let me give a little recap first. Uh, Paul has left his friend Titus, who he trusts, on the island of Crete, smack in the middle of the Mediterranean. And we learned that the society in Crete was a bit of a shambles uh, by their own admission. And whatever church might have been there in its fledgling form was also very messed up as well. So this was a tough job for Paul's friend Titus to stay in Crete. Um, Interestingly, this also seems to have been a temporary assignment for Titus. If you just look at the end of chapter 3, where it says final remarks, Paul says to Titus, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. So it seems like Paul's not quite decided who he's going to send to tag Paul uh, Titus out, but Titus has been left in Crete for a temporary time, basically to straighten things out. He's like a troubleshooter who's there to lay a good foundation, to straighten things out, and to get things going in a better direction than they've already been going. So we've entitled this series, Building a Healthy Church. I want to try and begin today by giving you a little overview of the book. We didn't do this last week. There's only three chapters. I think there are three broad themes. Um, This is not the best graphic I've ever done, but I wanted to emphasize, oh, there you go. Sorry, not sorry. It's not the best graphic I've ever done. I wanted to show you, I'm really trying to convey here that these three things all link together. So that was my attempt at showing like chain links. Chapter one, if you were here last week, is all about strong leadership. The first thing Paul tells Titus to do if he's going to build healthy churches is to find and appoint the right kind of leaders. This is true in any organization, isn't it, I suppose, but particularly in a church, we learned last week that healthy leaders need to have integrity in their character, but they also need to have confidence in the power of the gospel to change people's lives. If a leader doesn't have confidence in the gospel, in the Christian message to change people, he may as well give up. And that's exactly why Paul leaves Titus in this place. This place, as we saw last week, was a mess. The reason they stay there, they're not going off to some nice place to do church. They're going to a dark place because they have a confidence that the gospel will have an impact and change people. So that's all part of the same thing in relation to leadership. In chapter 2, as we'll see today, the focus shifts more towards healthy relationships and I think primarily within the church although 
Paul does talk a little bit about relationships outside of the church as well. And chapter 3 continues that. Chapter 3 looks more outward, outside the church. And I couldn't think of a better heading that would fit on my graphic. What, what, what Paul is saying in chapter 3 is that Christian believers should be good citizens wherever they live and work. Christi- being a Christian should impact the good that we do. We, we, we should be people who contribute to society. Um, so th- those three things are, are the three themes. They all kind of interlink leadership, healthy relationships in the church, and good interaction and engagement with the culture that the church is in. So wherever you are going to find a healthy church, I, I, I want to suggest that these three things are likely to be present to some degree. And where these things are not present to some degree, a church is likely not to be healthy. Now, this week has been a bit hard for me because about nearly 10 years ago, I did some teaching from the book of Titus before. And when I look back at what what I said from chapter 2, I I did four talks. So this week, I, I, I wish I'd never done that because I feel like I'm squeezing like four pints into a one pint jar. Like, so inevitably, there's a whole load of stuff that we can't touch on. Um, and there's been a stress for me this week in that. Um, so we're going to go big in terms of getting the overall thrust of what Paul is saying here. We don't have time to tease out all of the details. Um, I, I feel like I've often said that it's important in life for us to understand the what but it's equally important for us to understand the why behind the what. And this chapter is a good example of that. Paul gives a lot of instructions to Titus here. I want you to teach this and this and this and this. That's the what. But behind that, later on in the chapter, there is a massive amount of why. And I think rather than us getting immersed in the what, I want us to lean into the second part of the chapter and think about the why from verse 11 uh, onwards. Um, I'm I'm also aware though let me just say this at the beginning in passing that there is some teaching here that may well sound very provocative to modern ears Um, there's stuff here about uh, gender roles there's stuff here about marriage there's stuff here about there's teaching here about slaves Um, I I, I just want you to know that I'm not ignoring that. And if if you're reading that and you're thinking, man, that kind of jars with me, don't let it put you off the whole talk. We we could spend our time looking at that, but I really want to lean into the why more than the details of the what. So if you want to talk to me about some of that, if that struck you afterwards, feel feel free to do that. I just want you to know that I'm not ignoring that or glossing over that. This was why I did four talks last time, so... And we've got one, so we've got to kind of miss some stuff out. I really only have one simple question today, um, and then we'll try and close at the end with two brief applications. My question is this. It's on the handout today, and it'll appear on the screen. Why does Christianity change the way we relate to one another? That's the why question. What is it about the message of Christianity, the content 
of Christianity? What is it about the Christian gospel or good news that changes the way we relate to one another as human beings? I think that's a really good and important question. I hope it's a question you think about. Maybe you're here today and you're currently thinking about this. I I think it's a good question for two reasons. First of all, in our society, there is a big issue with the plausibility of Christianity. Many people, you, you may well be one of them, many people dismiss Christianity as irrelevant and perhaps even feel a little sorry for people who do believe the Bible. I think many people think we've moved on from that. That is very old-fashioned and really only gullible people believe this stuff. And society is moving on and leaving this kind of stuff behind. Even harder than that, I think, is the fact that some people in our society now take it as a given that Christianity, by definition, is bad for society. Christians are not fair. They don't treat everyone equally. They're very judgmental. I I, I think our society, in many places, actually believes that it is kinder and more tolerant than Christianity has ever been. There may be some truth in that when you speak to some Christians, but I think there's an assumption there that our society thinks our society is kinder and more tolerant than any form of Christianity would be. Christianity is seen as intolerant and maybe even dangerous by some people. So this is a really important question, isn't it, with that backdrop in mind. I well remember a gentleman coming to my office in church and asking me this very question. He started by telling me that he'd never met a religious leader he felt he could trust, which wasn't a great start, coming to talk to a minister of a church. I've never met a religious leader I can trust. Everyone I've ever met has been corrupt. But this was his question. Does the message of Christianity make any difference And if it does, what is it about that message that changes things? Do I need to be a Christian to be a good man or a good husband or a good dad? Does Christianity work and why? So there's one reason why this question is a good question. And I I sense, maybe you feel this, if you're a Christian believer, maybe you feel this. I sense there are more people in our modern culture in Britain today who are afraid of what they think Christianity is than there are people who are rushing to find out more about it because they think it could help them. I I think you would agree with that. Secondly, I think this is an important question because I, I can't help feeling at the same time that our current society is not that good at relationships. So on the one hand, I think there's an enormous sense of pride at our tolerance in in our society and our sense of equality and fairness. And yet, at the same time, our society, in many senses, is disintegrating. So there there is an irony in that. I think um, we live in a culture that is deeply individualistic, very sensitive, 
We, we live in a culture that prides itself on being tolerant and yet doesn't seem to be able to get on with itself. Marriages break up so much that many people don't even get married anymore. But breakups among couples who live together apparently are even higher than divorce rates. Family breakdown is at an all-time high. In any classroom of 30 children, just take Rotherham. If you went into any classroom in any school in Rotherham and took a cross-section of 30 kids in a class, there would be all kinds of relational trauma behind the scenes, wouldn't there? We know that. Teachers struggle with that. And it is, isn't it, often our children who suffer the most because they have no solid role models or examples of how relationships should work. It seems to me that there is a kind of quiet desperation often simmering under the surface of many of our lives. People get angry so quickly. People are so easily offended. We're so anxious to be liked and loved. Often we're checking our status on social media, but we, we don't seem to know how to live together in any kind of harmony or peace. I, don't, I was struck by this last weekend. I don't know if you saw the US Open women's final last week. Did you see the meltdown that Serena Williams had? This is not a very flattering picture, but it is what it is. She, she had a total meltdown on live TV in the middle of a tennis match. I know that, I mean, we're not tennis players. Who, who knows the pressure? But it was astonishing, wasn't it? She felt the umpire was being unfair and she completely lost it on court. This, it's been interesting this week reading some of the social commentators. Some commentators have um, questioned the umpire. Um, he, he, he was playing by the rules, but he was way too picky and he could have defused the situation if he'd been a bit more sensible. So then there's been talk of that this being sexist because a male tennis player doing the same thing. Was it some, someone said this week if a male tennis player did this, they'd be admired. When a, when a woman tennis player does it, they're just being hysterical. So there's a bit of sexism in there. Some people have talked about this being a racist incident and that this was an understandable, explosive reaction to a lifetime of being abused racially. Perhaps there's some truth in that. But it was most striking to me this week to hear another former player, Billie Jean King, 74 years old now, very famous tennis player, she suggested during this week that all of this happened because Serena felt that the judge questioned the integrity of her character. She thought that the umpire was calling her a cheat. And this complete meltdown was like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you question my integrity? I'm a mother. I've been... She lost it. And Billie Jean King said... It was all to do with the fact that her character was coming under fire. Most of us will never get the chance to express our hurts by screaming at the top of our lungs on live TV. But this same sense of offence 
is, isn't it there lurking very close to the surface? Isn't it nearby all the time? How dare you? Anyway, in chapter two, Paul is speaking into the issue of relationships. Let me get rid of Serena. There we go. In chapter two, look with me, Paul tells Titus to teach people. All kinds of different people he's told to teach older men and younger men, older women and younger women. And as we've already said, later on he talks about uh, teaching slaves in terms of their attitudes. He isn't condoning slavery, but but we can talk about that. But he, he is talking about attitude. The chapter begins with Paul making a contrast. I want you to see this. At the end of chapter one, Paul refers to teachers and teachings that were doing a lot of damage. In verse 11 of chapter one, he talks about teachers who ought to be silent because they are ruining whole families with the stuff that they're teaching. But then he says to Titus in verse 1 of chapter 2, you, however, he's making a contrast there, there are teachers who are doing damage, but you, Titus, you, Titus, must teach what is in accordance or appropriate to sound doctrine. This won't mean anything to some of our um, overseas friends, but I, I want to say to those of you who appreciate this that Paul is not talking to Titus here because he's a scouser. The word sound is not just a scouse word for something that's cool. People from Liverpool say this all the time. That's sound, mate. That's sound, sound, sound. He's not saying, I want you to teach sound doctrine. He's not doing it because he's Liverpoolian. The word sound means wholesome life-giving, healthy. You, however, Titus, don't teach people things that would destroy them, but give them something wholesome, life-giving, healthy, coherent. And our question is, what is it about this content that impacts our relationships. As Paul is going through all the practical details, I really wish we had time to unpick all of those, but we don't. But as he goes through verses 1 to 10, I think you can almost hear Titus asking the same question. Why? Teach older men this, Titus is like. Why? Teach older women this. Why? Teach slaves that. Why, Paul? Why? 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 And Paul anticipates this why question. And when he gets to verse 11, he's really saying, listen, Titus, mate, I'll tell you why I want you to teach all of this stuff. It's that little word for. At the beginning of verse 11, it's like a hinge that the whole passage turns on. That little word for really means because doesn't it there is a what and now comes the why Titus I want you to teach all these things why because the grace of God has appeared that's Paul's answer to the why question the reason I want you to teach the what 
is because the grace of God has appeared. So Paul's answer, Paul's why here is not more rules. There is teaching, but the why is not more rules. Paul's answer is not better politics. It's not better education. It isn't any kind of threat or bribe. Paul's answer is something so incredibly beautiful and transcendent that it actually changes people's hearts. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. I do want you to teach these people, Titus, teach them practical specifics. But the reason why is because it is the salvation bringing grace of God that is the real educator. The grace of God has appeared that teaches us. It is the grace of God that changes things. I, I think this seems so unexpected here. And I think it feels unexpected in our lives because I don't think we actually believe often that God is like this. The grace of God, let's just pause for a moment. The grace of God is really his undeserved kindness and love. The grace of God is his undeserved kindness and love. Kino touched on this earlier. The truth is that none of us have really lived in a way that pleases God. Our lives are so often not what they should be. And I, I, I want to venture to suggest that deep down in our hearts, even though we don't like that, we do know it deep down in our hearts and I, I think it makes us afraid. We, do, we, we don't have an expectation that God would be kind to us. I was blessed this past week to engage with a book written by a rap artist and poet uh, called Jackie Hill Perry. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a Christian and in this book, she talks about her journey to faith in Jesus and describes how her life had previously been dominated by her sexual identity. And I'll give you a couple of quotes as we go through, but listen to this. She, she is a poet, so she is good with words. But she said this, Who gave mercy my address? Or who told Mercy how to get into my room? Didn't it know that a sinner lived here in it? And on the way down the hall, shouldn't the smell of idols have kept its feet from coming any closer? Isn't that an eloquent way to say the same thing? Who gave Mercy my address? 
The grace of God has appeared. She felt that God wouldn't want to come to her house or to her room or to her heart. And even if he did, when he got there, he would shrink back when he smelt what she was really like. But Paul speaks here of something utterly awesome and beautiful. The grace of God has appeared. Paul here speaks of a God who loves the guilty, the rebel, the fearful, the person who is ashamed. And because he's a living God, a loving God and a living God, he's found a way to change things and forgive us and save us from condemnation. These words are so very rich. Look at what Paul says about a Christian believer. For the grace of God has appeared that offers or brings salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. A person who knows this grace from God can live a different life in this present age, right now, while they wait for the blessed hope. And what is that happy hope or confidence? Paul says it is the glorious appearing of Jesus himself, who Paul describes as our great God and Saviour. So a Christian is not someone who is waiting for God's righteous judgment to fall on them. There's no sense here of helplessly waiting for impending doom. No, a Christian believer is someone who is looking forward to that day with glad anticipation. A Christian believer is someone who says, Jesus is now not my judge. He is my savior. Jesus has not come to condemn me or suppress me or restrict me. He has come to free me. This doesn't mean that life is suddenly easy or that temptation is suddenly disappeared but it does mean that a Christian believer has a completely new identity and I do love Paul's emphasis on waiting here what are we waiting for what are we waiting for what are you waiting for what are you looking forward to what will be the end goal and result of your life in the end where will it all end Paul says here that the people who know and believe this good news from God can truly live now with courage and integrity and patience while they eagerly wait for Jesus, who is the lover of their very souls. So for Paul, the thing that really changes people's hearts, the why behind the what is not something miserable and threatening. The thing for Paul that changes everything is a sight 
of the glorious, beautiful grace of God. Jackie Hill Perry later writes of how she used to view Christianity. This is a slightly longer quote, but these are very helpful words. This is what she says. Christianity seemed to me to be a religion of just duty. I've met so many disciples who preached more of sin than of joy, whose eyes were stuck in a constant state of solemnity, clenched teeth, and an endless fascination with holiness. Why hadn't they ever mentioned the place happiness had within righteousness? Or how the taking up of the cross would be a practice of obtaining delight. Delight in all that God is. Even their saviour had this kind of joy in mind as he endured his cross. So why haven't they set their focus on the same? In their defence, they were not to blame for my unbelief. I just wonder if they would have told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they told me about the horridness of hell if I would have been my idols at a faster pace. That's convicting and challenging, isn't it? That's what Paul's talking about here. The beauty of God. This is not about rules. This is about our hearts. The truth is, we'll do anything for the people and the things that we love, won't we? And no one will live for God unless they love him. And you won't love God unless you find him desirable. And you will not find God supremely desirable until you see that he is fundamentally gracious to people like us who don't deserve anything of his sheer kindness. We're asking the question, why does this change the way we relate to one another? What is it about this that changes our relationships? Look with me here at verse 14. We're just going to look at verse 14 pretty much for the rest of our time. You know I like detail. (laughs) Whole chapter, let's zoom in on one verse. Look at what Paul says here about a real Christian. First of all, don't, don't not notice this. I love the fact that he speaks in the plural. This is not, I am this, I am that, I'm the other. Paul speaks here about the church. He is talking about the corporate experience of God's own precious people here. This is fundamentally relational. So, verse 14 breaks in. The previous clause talks about Jesus. This is what we're looking forward to, the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I want to say five things about this verse. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here we go. Oh, should have shown you that. We've talked about that. Because the grace of God has appeared. First of all, we are loved. Paul says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. He didn't give us something. He didn't give money. He didn't give an object. He gave his very self. Paul here, as we'll see, is pointing surely to the cross. Jesus did say in another place, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I think if we're honest, sometimes in our lives we struggle with the question of whether we are truly loved. How can I know? Well, Paul says we can know that Jesus doesn't merely say, I love you. He pours out his actual life because he loves us. Secondly, there you go, if I give it a shake, we are forgiven. Paul says here that Jesus has given himself in order to redeem us from all wickedness. And he did this through his death on the cross in our place. What that means is that Jesus took all of our sins, all of our failure on his shoulders, and he died the death that we deserve. The cross is amazing, isn't it? Because one of the beautiful things about the cross is that it upholds God's purity and justice while at the same time upholding his mercy and kindness and love. God doesn't just brush our sin under the carpet as if it doesn't matter. He does condemn sin. But he's found a way for Jesus to take that all off our shoulders so that we could be free from condemnation. God is just and kind. And that's the beauty of the cross here. Over the summer, oh, I meant to put this as a slide, totally forgot. I was a bit on the last minute. Um, I meant to put this, sorry. But over the summer, I've been reading in my own devotions many passages that have referred to this idea of forgiveness. Let me just give you one. We, we don't need to turn to it. But in the, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet in the Old Testament called Micah. Um, and he cried out one time, many years before Jesus was born. And th- th- this is what Micah cried out. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression. And then he goes on to say, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I read that one morning when I was in North Wales recently on holiday. 
and it was it was a it was a good morning. I love the image of God hailing all of our sins into the sea, don't you? I mean, he gets rid of them in the most emphatic and decisive way. He doesn't even just throw them as if he's feeding the ducks. He proper lobs them. He hails them. He's got a catapult or a trebuchet and he goes, bang, and he launches them. He hails them into the middle of the ocean. And it isn't just some of them. It's absolutely all of them. He hurls all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. He doesn't leave some of them lurking by the back door like a little pile of stinking rubbish. They are all gone. Paul could have said what Micah said right here. Who? Who is a God like you? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. God, you delight to show mercy. All of our shame, all of our mistakes, all of our deliberate willful sins, all of our fears, all of our mixed up desires, every wretched pang of guilt or regret, all those feelings of inability and despair, gone. All of them. Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul describes Jesus as our great God and Saviour. Jesus is the one who mightily, joyfully, gladly, with great energy, comes to remove it all. His powerful, rugged love redeems the very worst of us from all wickedness. I love the idea in Micah as well of God treading our sins underfoot as if there was some kind of pesky enemy that was coming between us. Even though the sin is all ours, Jesus takes it on as if it were all his. He takes it on as if it was some horrible, brutish monster that has us in its grip and he puts his foot on its throat he treads it underfoot. He tramples it. One of the things I think that can affect our relationships with one another is when the other party is constantly reminding us of our failures. But we have a God who isn't like that. We, we don't have a God who's constantly accusing us and reminding us of what we did last week and yesterday and last year, 10 years ago. Instead of our failure coming between us and God, he removes it from us so that we can look him in the eye. Friends, we're forgiven. Thirdly, and more briefly, we're, we're ready to be useful. It's not the best head in that, but you'll know what I mean in a minute. Paul says here that Christ purifies for himself a people. I do love this idea as well. In the Bible, the idea of purification is very important. It's important in many religions, isn't it? It's really about the idea of something being cleaned and prepared and got ready to be used. 
So in the temple, things had to be cleansed and set apart to be used. You, you couldn't just stroll into the temple with a rusty old spoon and start stirring offerings. It, it, things need to be cleaned before they can be used in such a glorious task. In the same way, I, I'm thinking that if someone said, you know, could we use your car for our wedding? I, I think I would spend a few days thoroughly cleaning it inside and outside. Or I would pay one of my kids to do it. That's probably more likely. But I, I would check what they'd done and make sure it was thoroughly clean. Why? I, I, I don't want the, the bride and groom to think that we've just been on an off-roading rally and there's mud everywhere and dog hairs inside the car. You, you, it needs to be cleansed to be made ready and fit for use. I think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has so cleansed us, his people, that we are now ready for action. Set apart as fit for use. We are not substandard. We are not unworthy. We are ready to serve. There's nothing that stands in the way of you doing a good job in this world. I think this speaks to our sense of unworthiness or inferiority. Some of us feel this keenly. Paul says here, Christ has cleansed you, purified you, and made you ready for action and fit for purpose. Fourthly, we belong. Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. All of this activity that Jesus undertakes is not him just ticking a box. Jesus has done all this because he actually wants us to be his. Jesus doesn't just tolerate us. We are precious to him. Do you, do you feel that? It, that? That means that your life counts. Whatever anyone else says to you or to someone else about you, there is a great banner held up by Jesus over your life that says, mine. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. If he says, man, we, we belong to him. He has bought us and we are his. And lastly, we are different now. That's not the best heading either, but I, I just want to pick up on that last phrase, eager to do what is good. Isn't this what we've been driving at with this whole talk? Why does Christianity shape the way we relate to one another? Because somehow God's grace works in people's hearts to change them so that they are now enthusiastic to do what is good because they want to. It's almost as if this brings in a new energy, a new motivation, a new determination. The person who knows all of this doesn't need any other reason to do what is good. 
The person who knows this isn't looking at life and thinking, what's the point? They're not doing what they do to impress other people. They're not doing it to earn brownie points. They're not anxious about being in trouble. The fact is that their whole life has been changed by this dynamic. This grace that brings salvation changes lives and puts our very existence into a different category. I've, I've tried to labour this a little and unpack what Paul is driving at here because it seems to me that are these not the things that we all yearn for? We learn to be, we, we yearn to be loved, to be forgiven, to be worthy, to belong, to have energy and eagerness. And can you see what Paul is saying here? These words are glorious. There's more truth packed into these two verses. It, it, it is incredible. All of this relational teaching is made possible because there is a beautiful grace from God that has appeared in this broken world. There is a God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. God is not a tyrant. He's not some kind of authoritarian monster who hates you. Jesus comes into this world clothed with this beautiful grace, kindness to sinners like us. If you're not trusting him already, trust him now. But our, our question is, how does this impact relationships? And I'm thinking particularly in the church. There's massive resources here to help us move towards one another rather than moving away from one another. So let me just round off with two brief applications we've done. There's so many applications. I've, I've, I've had a bit of stress with this as well because it's just hard to know what applications to pick on. I've put two on the sheet there. One... Um, one says participate, I think, and the other one says don't wriggle. So you'll be wondering what that is. So first of all, there you go, participate. Let me just look with you at the very last verse of chapter 2. We'll, we'll draw these two thoughts and then we're done. At, at the end of all this glorious, inspiring, beautiful description of the gospel, Paul says to Titus, with great understatement, these then are the things you should teach. <laughs> It's almost like Paul's almost popping with the excitement. These then are the things you should teach. There's the what and there's the why. Teach this. This is sound, mate. <laughs> Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Participate. Here's the thing. The job of a leader this is why these things overlap the job of a leader is not to do ministry at people the purpose of church is not just to show up on a Sunday and you sit there and whoever's up here at the front basically spoon feeds ministry into your open mouths and then you all go home no the, the, the role of a Christian leader the role that Paul gave to Titus here was to so teach these things that people in the church would be ministering to one another. 
you and I are not designed to be a once a week consumer of ministry, but an everyday participant in ministry. And it's hinted at here in Titus chapter 2. Paul actually says it explicitly. Teach the older women so that they can mentor younger women. That's what Paul's aiming at, Christians authentically helping one another, sharing life together, reminding each other of these truths. These are what we might call discipling relationships where we're helping one another grow in our faith and love and effectiveness. Elsewhere, Paul says, he wrote a letter to the Ephesian church and he says in Ephesians, the role of those who lead is, I quote, to prepare God's people for works of service, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's no leader in the world who can live your Christian life for you. And if leadership is about equipping and inspiring others, one of the ways we'll know whether our ministry here has been successful or not is, is when we see you guys ministering to one another. When you guys are ministering to one another, and many of you are, that's when I go, okay, this is working. That's when we know we've been effective. That's what Paul's aiming at here. So let me encourage you to be a participant rather than a consumer. So what do I mean by don't wriggle? We're, this, we're done with this. This is the last point. Paul says to Titus here, Titus, do not let anyone despise you. It's an interesting phrase. What does it mean to despise in this context? The word despise here is really about finding clever ways to avoid the implications of something. This is finding clever ways to say, I hear you, but this doesn't really apply to me. It might be fine for other people, but it's not relevant in my case. When Paul tells Titus to not let anyone despise him, he's not making this personal. He's not saying to Titus, Titus, you need to fight for your right as a leader. Don't let anyone despise you, mate. What he's saying is, don't let anyone under your care dodge or evade the implications of God's word to them. That's where the despising comes. So the issue here is one of trying to wriggle out from under the implications of God's word. The big issue is not Titus, but the wriggling. And that's why I say don't wriggle. It happened a lot in the Bible as people despised Moses because the way was too hard. This fellow's brought us out of Egypt so we can die in the desert. What an idiot. People despised Jesus. He was too familiar. Is this not Joseph's son, the carpenter? Who on earth is he? People despised Paul when he went to Athens. He debated with the intellectual philosophers of his day. They said he was too simplistic. What's this babbler trying to say? People despised Paul when he went to Corinth. He wasn't exciting enough. The macho superhero leaders, he wasn't like them. People despised another of Paul's friends, Timothy. He was too young. He had no life experience. How dare he tell us what to do? All down through the Bible, people 
try to evade the implications of God's word by despising the ones who bring it. Paul's point here is that in our human nature, we're always trying to find reasons to say, that doesn't apply to me. It applies to the person sitting next to you, but it doesn't apply to me. And we're wriggling. It doesn't have to be nasty or ugly. What we're doing in our hearts is telling ourselves, I do not want to obey this. This is beneath me, and I'm going to wriggle out from under it. So there's an attitude here to avoid. And Paul says it here to Titus, don't let anyone despise you. This is an attitude that says, I'm not listening. This is of no consequence to me. It isn't going to affect me. I I think in the end this comes down to a kind of pride in the end. Friends, being part of a healthy church is part of God's design to help us not to evade the implications of God's word. None of us can be a lone ranger. And the church is about togetherness, not individual self-expression. The church will help us to face issues rather than avoiding them. The church, when it's healthy, will help us to process the things that have hurt us so we can find healing. The church will provide us with a space to serve one another and grow and develop healthy relationships. So I close with this. If you're wavering in your commitment to your fellow Christians, do be careful. Believe in God's grace to you. Be involved and participate relationally. And don't wriggle. Don't wriggle out from under the truth of God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this brilliant little letter. Lord, we've, we've been very quick in uh, yeah, trying to suck some juice out of it. Um, Lord, would you, would you help us in our lives to appreciate more joyfully and believingly than we do already the sheer magnificence of your grace? And Father, would you help us to be people who live lives that are fueled and fired by that grace? Help us not to be joyless Christians who are going through the motions. Lord, help us to be captivated by what you've done for us in Christ. And, and may, may this grace, may, these, may this why in impact our relationships with one another. Help us to forgive one another as you've forgiven us. Help us to love one another like you have loved us. Lord, we pray that our church here would be pervaded not with a sense of dead formality, but with a sense of 
living, joyful relationships. Help us, Lord, to love you and to love one another. Bless us in these things, we pray. We ask it in the powerful and good name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.